Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2018 event. In the afterlife, you may find that God is the size of a microbe and unaware of your existence. Or you may find the afterlife contains only people whom you remember. In some afterlives, you may be split into all your different ages, or forced to live with annoying versions of yourself that represent what you could have been. Lauded by fans including Brian Eno, Philip Pullman and Jeff Dyer for its genius and originality, some, from which that quote comes, is a set of funny, wistful and unsettling short tales, written by the polymath American neuroscientist David Eagleman. He is joined by special guests Neil Stevenson, Robert Webb and Courtney Cena Meredith for readings from the collection, interspersed with mystically inspired music from acclaimed Blackbird Ensemble cellist and composer Claire Cohen. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here and to see so many friends, old and new. So, um, yeah, I we're going to read some stories tonight. I'm very lucky to have a number of very talented authors and musicians with me who are going to help read some of these stories. Um, I was asked to just give a word of intro about the book Some. Um, so I'm a, I'm a neuroscientist, that's what I do during the day, and science has been so fruitful in what it's been able to give us as a, as a civilization. Um, but I'm also a writer, I write fiction, like this book, and um, really they're sort of part of the same thing, because they're both just trying to understand what is going on around us, and ways of understanding the world. And the way we do that in science is we make these leaps, and then we look back to see if we can build a bridge to what we already know. And we have very specific methods for doing that, scientific method. But, but with literature, it's this other thing. It's making leaps to places and then just enjoying those islands where you land. And they are a very useful way of figuring out the bigger questions that science can't yet, maybe never, will be able to put a finger on. Questions of what we're doing here, what are existence is about what our lives should be made out of, this sort of question. So, so we're going to read some stories from some, and I want to introduce the people who are going to be joining us on stage tonight. So first is Claire Cowan. Uh, she's an award-winning composer and multi-instrumentalist. Her music has been performed by soloists and ensembles throughout the USA, New Zealand, Europe, Japan, and Australia. In 2014, her ensemble received a grant to develop a groundbreaking new show called The Afterlife, which combines devised physical theater with experimental music and classical musicians. Uh, we're going to have the, the writer Courtney Cena Meredith join us. She's a poet, playwright, fiction writer, and musician. And uh, she's an Iowa Writing School residency graduate and a regular guest in international festivals. She's the author of two collections, Brown Girls in Bright Red Lipstick, and The Tale of the Taniwa. I probably didn't pronounce that correctly, did I? Yes, I'm the visitor here. Nice to meet you. Um, Neil Stevenson. He's the author of the award-winning novels and articles on science technology, a number of them. He's been uh, the chief futurist for Magic Leap since 2014. His books that you, many of you have read include Snow Crash, The Baroque Cycle, and the latest is The Rise and Fall of Dodo. And then finally, we've got Robert Webb joining us. He's a writer, comedian, columnist, and actor. 
He's part of the comedic duo Mitchell and Webb and starred in Sony and BAFTA award-winning Peep Show, that Mitchell and Webb sound, and that Mitchell and Webb look. His best-selling memoir, How Not to Be a Boy, was published last year. So uh, a round of applause in advance for the, for the folks that are going to be coming out here. And I'm going to kick this off by reading the first story in the book Some, which is called Some. In the afterlife, you relive all your experiences, but this time with the events reshuffled into a new order. All the moments that share a quality are grouped together. So you spend two months driving the street in front of your house, seven months having sex. You sleep for 30 years without opening your eyes. For five months straight, you flip through magazines while sitting on a toilet. You take all your pain at once, all 27 intense hours of it. Bones break, cars crash, skin is cut, babies are born. Once you make it through, it's agony-free for the rest of your afterlife. But that doesn't mean it's always pleasant. You spend six days clipping your nails, 15 months looking for lost items, 18 months waiting in line, Two years of boredom, staring out a bus window, sitting in an airport terminal. One year reading books. Your eyes hurt and you itch because you can't take a shower until it's your time to take your marathon 200-day shower. <laughs> Two weeks wondering what happens when you die. One minute realizing your body is falling. 77 hours of confusion. One hour realizing you've forgotten someone's name. Three weeks realizing you are wrong. Two days lying. Six weeks waiting for a green light. Seven hours vomiting. 14 minutes experiencing pure joy. Three months doing laundry. 15 hours writing your signature. Two days tying shoelaces. 67 days of heartbreak, five weeks driving lost, three days calculating restaurant tips, 51 days deciding what to wear, nine days pretending you know what is being talked about, <laughs> two weeks counting money, 18 days staring into the refrigerator, 34 days longing, six months watching commercials, Four weeks sitting in thought, wondering if there is something better you could be doing with your time. Three years swallowing food. Five days working buttons and zippers. Four minutes wondering what your life would be like if you reshuffled the order of events. In this part of the afterlife, you imagine something analogous to your earthly life, and the thought is blissful. A life where episodes are split into tiny, swallowable pieces, where moments do not endure, where one experiences the joy of jumping from one event to the next, like a child hopping from spot to spot on the burning sand.
Wow. Um, sorry. You're amazing. You're amazing. Thank you so much for that. Woo. This is incredible. Uh, hello, Auckland. How are we? Death. Yeah. Here we all are. Nighttime of death. It's fine. It's all good. Free event too, death. I know. I know. I, li I just made that up now. Um, Thank you all so much for coming out tonight, and it's so wonderful to be here with so many fantastic writers, and I am going to read The Unnatural. When you arrive in the afterlife, the technicians inform you of the great opportunity awaiting you. Make any single change you want, and then live life over again. Their pamphlets suggest that you might choose to make yourself two inches taller, <laughs> or give everyone on the earth a better sense of humour, or make birds talk. You then get to rerun that choice on the earth to see what happens. They inform you proudly that this is a unique experiential education programme. 
Having just attended your own funeral, you may be tempted to propose a clever choice. You want to be the one who eradicates death altogether from our planet. Just be forewarned. If you propose this, a kind technician may pull you aside just to let you know that you have tried this path before in your previous reruns of life and it inevitably led to frustration. Are you telling me this because it will put you out of a job, you ask? No, the technician replies. Is this because death is incurable, you ask? No, the technician says. In that case, I would like to have my wish fulfilled. Suit yourself, replies the technician. So in your new life, you grow into a famous medical visionary. You argue that there is no such thing as a natural death and raise millions to fund your research. You program computers to calculate all possible mutations of viruses before they happen and design prophylactic treatments against them. You compute the exact effects of every medication on the normal cycles of the body. Your aggressive anti-death program is a success. After the final breath of an incurably ill elderly woman, you are able to announce that hers represented the last natural death. Great celebrations ensue. People begin to live forever, healing just as they would when they were young, free at last from the overhanging cloud of mortality. You are greatly admired. But eventually, just as the technician warned, your success begins to lose its shine. People come to discover that the end of death is the death of motivation. Too much life, it turns out, is the opiate of the masses. There is a noticeable decline in accomplishment. People take more naps. There's no great rush. In an attempt to salvage their once dynamic lives, people begin to set suicide dates for themselves. It is a welcome echo of the old days of finite lifespans, but superior because of the opportunity to say goodbye and complete your estate planning. That works well for a while, rekindling the incentive to live strongly. But eventually, people begin to take the system with less than the appropriate seriousness. And if some large new development occurs, such as a new relationship, they simply postpone the suicide date. Whole cadres of procrastinators grow. When they reschedule a new date, others ridicule them by calling it a death threat. There develops enormous social pressure to follow through with the suicides. At long last, after many abuses of the system, it is legislated that there is no changing a preset death date. But eventually, it comes to be appreciated that not just the finitude of life, but also the surprise timing of death is critical to motivation. So people begin to set ranges for their death dates. In this new framework, their friends throw surprise parties for them, like birthday parties, except they jump out from behind the couch and kill them. <laughs> Since you never know when your friends are going to schedule your party, it reinstills the carpe diem attitude of former years. Unfortunately, 
people begin to abuse the surprise party system to extinguish their enemies under the protection of necro-legislation. In the end, great masses of rioters break into your medical complex, kick the plugs out of the computers, and once again have a great celebration to mark the last of the unnatural lives. And you end up back in the technician's waiting room. Thanks so much for being here, David. What a pleasure. Thanks, everyone.
gosh, that was amazing. Uh, right, I'll just follow that then. Um, okay, my name is Robert Webb, and on with the death. Um, this is David's story, Metamorphosis. There are three deaths. The first is when the body ceases to function. The second is when the body is consigned to the grave. The third is that moment sometime in the future when your name is spoken for the last time. So you wait in this lobby until the third death. There are long tables with coffee, tea, and cookies. You can help yourself. There are people here from all over the world, and with a little effort, you can strike up convivial small talk. Just be aware that your conversation may be interrupted at any moment by the callers, who broadcast your new friend's name to indicate that there will never again be another remembrance of him by anyone on Earth. Your friend slumps, face like a shattered and sorry, face like a shattered and re-glued plate, saddened even though the callers tell him kindly that he's off to a better place. No one knows where that better place is or what it offers because no one exiting through that door has returned to tell us. Tragically, many people leave just as their loved ones arrive since the loved ones were the only ones doing the remembering. We all wag our heads at that typical timing. The whole place looks like an infinite airport, airport wait, waiting area. There are many famous people from the history books there if you get bored, you can strike out in any given direction, past aisles and aisles of seats. After many days of walking, you'll start to notice that people look different, and you'll hear the tones of foreign languages. People congregate among their own kind, and one sees the spontaneous emergence of territories that mirror the pattern of the surface of the planet. With the exception of the oceans, you're traversing a map of the Earth. There are no time zones here. No one sleeps even though they mostly wish they could. The place is evenly lit by fluorescent lights. Not everyone is sad when the callers enter the room and shout out the next list of names. On the contrary, some people beg and plead, prostrating themselves at the caller's feet. These are generally the folks who have been here a long time, too long, especially those who are remembered for unfair reasons. For example, take the farmer over there who drowned in a small river 200 years ago. Now his farm is the site of a small college, and the tour guides each week tell his story. <laughs> so he's stuck, and he's miserable. The more his story is told, the more the details drift. He is utterly alienated from his name. It is no longer identical with him, but continues to bind. The cheerless woman across the way is praised as a saint, even though the roads in her heart were complicated. The gray-haired man at the vending machine was lionized as a war hero, then demonized as a warlord, and finally canonized as a necessary firebrand between the two moments in history. He waits with aching heart for his statues to fall. And that is the curse of this room. Since we live in the heads of those who remember us, we lose control of our lives and become who they want us to be. This next story is called Narcissus. In the afterlife, you receive a clear answer about our purpose on the earth. Our mission is to collect data. 
We have been seated on this planet as sophisticated mobile cameras. We are equipped with advanced lenses that produce high-resolution visual images, calculating shape and depth from wavelengths of light. The cameras of our eyes are mounted on bodies that carry them around, bodies that can scale mountains, spelunk caves, cross plains. We are outfitted with ears to pick up on air compression waves and large sensory sheets of skin to collect temperature and texture data. We have been designed with analytic brains that can get this mobile equipment on top of clouds, below the seas, onto the moon. In this way, each observer from every mountaintop contributes a little piece to the vast collection of planetary surface data. We were planted here by the cartographers, whose holy books are what we would recognize as maps. Our calling is to cover every inch of the planet's surface. As we roam, we vacuum data into our sensory organs. And it is for this reason only that we exist. At the moment of our death, we awaken in the debriefing room. Here, our lifetime of data collection is downloaded and cross-correlated with the data of those who have passed before us. By this method, the cartographers integrate billions of viewpoints for a dynamic, high-resolution picture of the planet. They long ago realized that the optimal method for achieving a planet-wide map was to drop countless little mobile rugged devices that multiply quickly and carry themselves to all the reaches of the globe. To ensure that we spread widely on the surface, they made us restless, longing, lusty, and fecund. Unlike previous mobile cam camera versions, they built us to stand, crane our necks, turn our lenses onto every detail, become curious, and independently develop new ideas for increased mobility. The brilliance of the design specification was that our pioneering efforts were not pre-scripted. Instead, to conquer the unpredictable variety of landscapes, we were subjected to natural selection to develop dynamic, unforeseen strategies. The cartographers do not care who lives and dies as long as there is broad coverage. They are annoyed by worship and genuflection. It slows down data collection. When we awaken in the giant spherical windowless room, it may take a few moments to realize that we are not in a heaven in the clouds. Rather, we are deep at the center of the Earth. The cartographers are much smaller than we are. They live underground and are averse to light. We are the biggest devices they could build. To them, we are giants large enough to jump creeks and scale boulders, an impressive machine ideal for planetary exploration. The patient cartographers pushed us out onto a spot on the surface and watched for millennia as we spread like ink over the surface of the planet until every zone took on the color of human coverage, until every region came under the watchful gaze of the compact mobile sensors. Estimating our progress from their control center, the mobile camera engineers congratulated themselves on a job well done. They waited for humans to spend lifetimes turning their data sensors on patches of ground, the strata of rocks, the distribution of trees. And yet, despite the initial success, the cartographers are profoundly frustrated with the results. Despite the planetary coverage and, life long span and, and long lifespans, 
the mobile cameras collect very little that is useful for cartography. Instead, the devices turn their ingeniously created compact lenses directly into the gazes of other compact lenses, an, an ironic way to trivialize the technology. On their sophisticated sensory skin, they simply want to be stroked. The brilliant air compression sensors are turned toward the whispers of lovers rather than critical planetary data. Despite their robust outdoor design, they have spent their energies building shelters into which they cluster with one another. Despite good spreading on large scales, they clump at small scales. They build communication networks to view pictures of one another remotely when they are apart. Day after day, with sinking hearts, the cartographers scroll through endless reels of useless data. The head engineer is fired. He has created an engineering marvel that only takes pictures of itself.
descent of species. In the afterlife, you're treated to a generous opportunity. You can choose whatever you would like to be in the next life. Would you like to be a member of the opposite sex, born into royalty, a philosopher with bottomless profundity, a soldier facing triumphant battles? But perhaps you've just returned here from a hard life. Perhaps you were tortured by the enormity of the decisions and responsibilities that surrounded you. And now there's only one thing you yearn for, simplicity. That's permissible. So for the next round, you choose to be a horse. You covet the bliss of that simple life, afternoons of grazing in grassy fields, the handsome angles of your skeleton and the prominence of your muscles, the peace of the slow flicking tail, or the steam rifling through your nostrils as you lope across snow-blanketed plains. You announce your decision. Incantations are muttered, a wand is waved, and your body begins to metamorphose into a horse. Your muscles start to bulge. A mat of strong hair erupts to cover you like a comfortable blanket in winter. The thickening and lengthening of your neck immediately feels normal as it comes about. Your carotid arteries grow in diameter. Your fingers blend hoofward. Your knees stiffen, your hips strengthen. And meanwhile, as your skull lengthens into its new shape, your brain races in its changes. Your cortex retreats as your cere cerebellum grows. The homunculus melts man to horse. Neurons redirect. Synapses unplug and replug on their way to equestrian patterns. And your dream of understanding what it is like to be a horse gallops toward you from the distance. Your concern about human affairs begins to slip away. Your cynicism about human behavior melts, and even your human way of thinking begins to drift away from you. Suddenly, for just a moment, you are aware of the problem you overlooked. The more you become a horse, the more you forget the original wish. You forget what it was like to be a human wondering what it was like to be a horse. <laughs> this moment of lucidity does not last long, but it serves as the punishment for your sins, a Promethean entrails picking moment, crouching half horse, half man, with the knowledge that you cannot appreciate the destination without knowing the starting point. You cannot revel in the simplicity unless you remember the alternatives. And that's not the worst of your revelation. You realize that the next time you return here with your thick horse brain, you won't have the capacity to ask to become a human again. <laughs> you won't understand what a human is. Your choice to slide down the intelligence ladder is irreversible. And just before you lose your final human faculties, you painfully ponder what magnificent extraterrestrial creature enthralled with the idea of finding a simpler life, chose in the last round to become a human. <clears throat> this one's called Reversal. There is no afterlife, but that doesn't mean we don't get to live a second time. At some point, the expansion of the universe will slow down, stop, and begin to contract. And at that moment, the arrow of time will reverse. Everything that happened on the way out will happen again, but backward. 
In this way, our life neither dies nor disintegrates, but rewinds. In this reverse life, you are born of the ground. At funeral ceremonies, we dig you up from the earth and transport you grandly to the mortuary, where the birth makeup is removed. You then are taken to the hospital, where, surrounded by doctors, you open your eyes for the first time. In your daily life, broken vases reassemble. Meltwater freezes into snowmen. Broken hearts find love. Rivers flow uphill. Marriages re-ride rocky roads and eventually end in erotic dating. The pleasures of a lifetime of intercourse are relived, culminating in kisses instead of sleep. Bearded men become smooth-faced children who are sent to schools to gently strip away the original sins of knowledge. Reading, writing, and mathematics are expunged. After this diseducation, graduates shrink and crawl and lose their teeth, achieving the purity of the highest state of the infant. On their last day, howling because it is the end of their lives, babies climb back into the wombs of their mothers, who eventually shrink and climb back into the wombs of their mothers, and so on, like concentric Russian dolls. In this reverse life, you have blissful expectations about what will come next as you experience your story backward. At the moment of reversal, you are genuinely happy for while life must be lived forward for the first time, you suspect it will really be understood only upon replay. But you have a painful surprise in store. You discover that your memory has spent a lifetime manufacturing small myths to keep your life story consistent with who you thought you were. You have committed to, co to a coherent narrative misremembering little details and decisions and sequences of events. On the way back, the cloth of that storyline unravels. Reversing through the corridors of your life, you are battered and bruised in the collisions between reminiscence and reality. By the time you enter the womb again, you understand as little about yourself as you did your first time here. Thank you.
what an extraordinary evening. This festival really does celebrate the amazing things that the human brain is capable of, and I think tonight is an exceptional example of that. So could we please thank again Claire Cowan. <laughs> Courtney Cena Meredith. Robert Webb. Neil Stevenson. And of course, David Eagleman. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website writersfestival.co.nz.